Beyond the Paper Gown inspires, informs, and empowers women with the latest information about our health and healthcare choices. Join in for provocative conversations with scientists, clinicians, policymakers, and innovators. Beyond the Paper Gown is hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, internal medicine specialist and women's health advocate. The following information is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. This information is not intended as a substitute for professional therapy or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover. Before we get started today, I'd like to tell you about another show in the Offscript Network, The Heart of Healthcare. As you know, here at Beyond the Paper Gown, we try to look at all the factors that impact on women's health. The heart of healthcare likewise expands the traditional lens of what we think of as healthcare by exploring the social determinants of health, including our food system, housing, climate change, and more. Quite simply, this is a podcast about improving the health and well-being of everyday Americans. You'll hear from the people behind the movements to better understand the underlying problems and how we can work together to solve them, such as Mark Cuban talking about his new company focused on reducing drug cost, or a physician warning us that we may not have enough primary care providers. Of course, one of my favorite episodes makes the point that women's health is not a niche. If this sounds good to you, as I know it does, please find the link in our show notes. Today's topic is sexual health. So, fair warning, we are going to have a very candid conversation about this very intimate subject. Our guest is Dr. Lindsay Harper. She is a practicing OBGYN, as well as sexual health specialist, and the CEO of Rosie Wellness. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and get to talk about my favorite topics. Terrific. Well, we're glad to have you. And, you know, this is a difficult topic to talk about, I'm sure, for some people, maybe even most people. So I'm just going to jump in. And how do you start a conversation with your patients about sexual health or sexual wellness? The way that I like to, to teach other physicians how to do this and to talk to patients about it is really by opening the door and saying, you know, really, women's sexual health problems are actually very common and are experienced by 43% of women. Right. So that takes away whatever shame or stigma or embarrassment we might as individuals be feeling, because since there is so much lack of conversation in society about these topics, oftentimes women feel like they're the only ones suffering with these problems. But in fact, they're they're very, very common. So I start by saying, you know, lots of women have trouble with these issues. um, And I know that they can be disruptive in your life, because I think when you hear your physician acknowledging that, you know, a a women's sexual health issue is not something to be dismissed, but something to be actually taken seriously, that then that gives the patient the the permission and the room she needs to um, potentially disclose whatever problem she's having. And then I say, you know, do you have any sexual health or sexual function concerns that you would like to share with me today? And um, that gives them the opportunity to say, okay, these are really common my doctor understands that they can cause, you know, serious um, ramifications in my life, and she's inviting me 
to then have a, a confidential, you know, discussion that's that's respectful. And I think that when we convey those values and those intentions with our patients, that hopefully they feel more comfortable talking to us about it. If not, that's okay because then they know when they go home over the next year or six months or one month until you see them the next time that if a sexual concern or issue comes up, that they have a safe place to go and discuss those things. So even if you don't have an issue going on at the time, the patient now knows that, you know, there's an open door for future conversations. And so let's turn the table and say that a physician isn't asking those questions that we would like them to, and a woman does have a problem. How should they initiate the conversation? Because I think that most women would say, well, if they're not asking, they really don't want to know. You know, don't ask, don't tell. There may be physicians who feel like it would be prying or that the woman might be offended or or something like that. So how would you suggest that they initiate that conversation? The challenge with sexuality, sexual health is that because it's been absent from our conversations for so long, we it's it's hard for any of us to talk about physicians, patients, and it's very emotionally charged. Oftentimes we might feel guilt or we might feel shame or we might feel embarrassment. And those feelings that are on top of the of the actual medical problem can um, really hamper the ability to get to what the problem is. But if we can say, okay, I've had sexual pain since the very first time I was ever sexually active. It's, you know, this, this makes it worse. This makes it better. These are the things I've tried. Um, then those, those really important facts can help that physician kind of get to an answer faster. But it may be the case that they are not sure what to do. And then in that situation, you know, I would say that um, what we need there is just a respectful conversation with a request for a potential referral. So just like you were mentioning, you know, if if your physician doesn't know what to do with a specific complaint that you're having, it's on us. It's our sort of next obligation to find you, to get you to someone who really does know those things. And increasingly so, there are more and more resources in the field of women's sexual health. That that wasn't true a few years ago, but we're getting, you know, we're getting some more um, really knowledgeable people in the field. Let's go ahead and just dive into some of the challenges um, that you see commonly um, for women, especially women that may be entering perimenopause or, or menopause. Absolutely. So when we think about sexual dysfunction, there are really um, several domains in which we sort of place patients. So the first is sexual, low sexual desire. So many would say low or absent sexual desire. And, you know, it's important to qualify here that um, if you identify as an asexual person, meaning someone who has never been interested in sex, someone who that is not, you know, something that would ever sound like a like an interesting idea to you, that is different, right? Low sexual desire specifically is I had what I thought at one time was to be an acceptable level of sexual desire, and that has changed for whatever reason. And that happens so frequently, right, to women, not only perimenopausal, but a lot a lot of times even earlier, just because of our multiple, um, you know, responsibilities that we have going on in life, lots of life stressors, the longer a relationship goes on, all of these factors can kind of play into that. So low sexual de- desire is the most common one reported by about 38% of women, and distressing low desire, meaning there's some sort of life problem caused by that, whether it's your own self-esteem, whether it's your relationship, whether it's affecting your levels of anxiety or depression, that 
um, low desire plus distress is experienced by about 10% of women. So that's a very big number of women, especially for us to not know, you know, exactly what to do for these patients. Um, the second most common issue is trouble with arousal. So we talk about desire being in the brain. So those are chemical reactions happening in the brain that are thoughts of us wanting to initiate sexual activity, whether with ourselves or with a partner. And arousal actually happens in the body. So arousal is like an erection in men. The same thing's happen in the clitoris and in the vulva. It becomes engorged with blood and enlarges in size. Often this is um, associated with throbbing or pulsating in the pelvis. So desire is the most common um, problem that women face, but arousal, actual trouble with physical arousal, much like men have trouble with arousal with erectile dysfunction, is the second most common. And that's experienced by about a quarter of women. So once again, a super common problem, um, many causes, but some of them are the same as in men. So, um, you know, heart conditions, diabetes, certain medications. When we think about the reasons that they happen in men, they often happen for the same exact reasons in women. And then we can add in some, um, you know, nerve or blood vessel injury from childbirth or surgery or any other trauma to the pelvis. Um, the third most common um, issue is actually sexual pain. And that's experienced by 10 to 20% of women, and that's chronic sexual pain. Most of us will have sexual pain at some point in our lives, whether it's after a baby or, um, you know, something temporary due to ovulation or something like that. But this is chronic sexual pain, meaning sex uh, pain happens with sex most of the time. And obviously that's extremely distressing um, and has a lot of potential causes, including endometriosis, scarring, changes in hormones that often happen with perimenopause or menopause. When that estrogen starts to decline, the vaginal tissues really start to become more thin, they become less lubricated, more prone to infection. So that can become a big issue around and after menopause. Um, next, we have trouble with orgasm, experienced by also about 20% of women. Um, same factors uh, for risk at risk for that as for arousal. And then um, lastly, we have trouble with lubrication. Once again, could be a hormonal problem, usually experienced after babies, during lactation, um, or around or after the time of menopause. You mentioned lubrication. And so that leads me to think about, you know, not only after childbirth, but again, um, getting into perimenopause and menopause. Um, there's so many things, though. Um, you know, estrogen changes can also lead to hot flashes, mood swings, um, uh, sleep problems. I'm assuming all of that uh, takes a real toll on women's sex lives. Absolutely, and how and how could it not? You know, and what part of life does it not take? <laughs> take a toll on. So it's just another, <laughs> That's true. just another example of why it's so important to treat these menopausal symptoms for women, right? We, it, we pretend that it's a normal part of life and it's not a big deal and we should all kind of like work through it or struggle through it. But the fact of the matter is it has a huge effect on our own personal sense of self, on our, you know, level of productivity and engagement at work, on our, you know, level of anxiety and um, interactiveness with our family, and certainly on our sex lives. Um, stress is the number one desire, you know, killer. Um, and I can't imagine a more stressful time than menopause, right? It's, it's stressful for so many reasons. And so the sooner we can alleviate those symptoms for women effectively, the, the better or the, the, the sooner we can also alleviate the, the fallout from those symptoms, including sexual side effects. I also think about women who may be newly divorced 
or, you know, having been in a monogamous relationship and now going out um, and dating? And what do you talk to them about? My favorite sex therapist with whom I gave this ACOG talk named Lori Mintz, she often refers to a sexual script, right? So in a long-term relationship, often we develop these sexual scripts where we're like, okay, this is what our sex life looks like. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. And this is how we interact with ourselves and our partner. But whenever we're, you know, coming out of a long-term relationship and entering you know, a new phase of life, it's an opportunity to rewrite that sexual script for ourselves. And what that requires is that we take a look at what it is that we as individuals actually want. And I think that that's a huge, you know, a huge thing that happens after the end, you know, the end of a long term relationship and can lead to a lot of future fulfillment. Because sometimes our wants and needs maybe have, you know, been morphed by our partner or, or for our partner. And so it's an it's a time where we can rediscover what's important to us again. And oftentimes, later in life, we're able to say that with more confidence, we're able to, you know, to identify those things with more conviction. And it really just requires some self examination, just like everything else, you know, when there's a big major life change um, to say, hey, what am I into? What am I not into? What do I want to try? You know, there's lo- there's so many opportunities. And, um, you know, it's we're never too, it's never too late to, to reimagine, you know, what that part of our lives can look like for sure. Sure. And unfortunately, we're never too old to also be exposed to new sexually transmitted infections. Yeah. <laughs> so I would just, <laughs> I'm sure you also tell folks uh, to still use, you know, if they haven't been using pre- uh, protection, you know, because we're used to using protection for contraception. Um, and maybe that's no longer an issue, but certainly you still need to use protection. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and, you know, at any point in life, if you're having unprotected sex with, you know, a, with a non-monogamous partner or multiple partners, definitely we're at risk for all all the STIs. And, you know, that's just a bummer. That just leads to a lot of other issues that we don't <laughs> yes. want to deal with. So we might as well, you know, we might as well express our sexual freedom by also protecting ourselves <laughs> from these things that can kind of get in the way of that as well. You know, and you talk about uh, what sex means to individuals, um, whether it comes from their uh, sexual orientation or gender. And it dawns on me that there are a lot of cultural norms that have to also be addressed and maybe sometimes transcended. And so can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, I think in, I am in Texas, so we have a lot of <laughs> cultural norms down here. Um, but this, it, what's fascinating to me is that this exists all over the world. And so I think what's the most helpful tactic that I have employed is to really meet women where they are and to really understand what's important to them and how we can help them through their current context to live the most sexually fulfilled and sexually healthy life that there is, right? Whether that is offering them permission to have a conversation about sexual problems or it's, you know, really guiding them through to through with a therapist or with a sex therapist to release whatever shame or guilt they're holding on to from something in their past, or, you know, even exploring through their own personal religious texts. And this isn't something that I do because I'm not, you know, involved deeply in any of these religious um, communities, but we have been able to identify, you know, people who are not only sexuality experts or sex medicine doctors, but who also are devout women in their faith. And those women are really able to talk to, you know, these patients from based on, you know, their religious texts and say, you know, within marriage, this is, you know, this is how sexuality was written about in these religious texts. And you'll find there's such a commonality between all of them, which is fascinating 
saying, which is that within the context of their religion, within the context of their relationship, that, you know, whomever the higher being is in that context means for that to be a fulfilling relationship. And so then we do whatever we can to support the woman on that journey and to reassure her that her sexuality is not bad, her sexuality is not dirty. And there's so many opportunities to really live a fulfilling aspect, um, a a fulfilling sexual uh, life within those contexts. So it can be really beautiful. It feels complicated, but it's actually not because it's the same, the same sort of stories repeated, but throughout different cultures and religions. Let's talk a little bit about some of the more common issues that you're seeing and maybe some of the treatments or uh, referrals that you make. Yeah, great. Um, so as we mentioned, low desire or decreased libido is the most common sexual complaint that women have. And there's actually lots of lots of interventions that are evidence-based. Um, and whenever we think about a sexual problem, we really think about it in three um, different parts. The first is the biology, right? What's going on in the body that could mm-hmm. be contributing to this? The second is <clears throat> what's going on from the psychology side of things. That includes those cultural sort of overtones or undertones that we were talking about. That includes any anxiety, depression, that includes body image um, issues. All of those things are, fall under the psychological component. And then the last is the social component, right? What's going on in the relationship? What's you know? What are the other extraneous factors that can really be affecting this clinical picture? When we think about it from the, you know the, the the most common issues are the most common causes, and that's really going to be stress, which we discussed, um, and then um, and that can actually be uh, effectively treated with mindfulness tools, which I know everyone's like eye rolling about mindfulness these days, but they're actually so important, right? When we are feeling stressed, that we're not going to allow room in our brain for sexual thoughts. When we're feeling stressed and our partner you know touches us in a way that might be intimate or sexual, we are not going to receive that in the way that they intend it, right? We're going to instead tell them to please get away from us or maybe not so nicely. Um, And so we really have to work on our own sense of, you know, of stress and anxiety in our life because that can take a really big toll. And so obviously that can be done through mindfulness. That can also be, you know, if you have a clinical diagnosis, then obviously there's always ways to to decrease anxiety and stress as well through medication. When we return, Dr. Harper provides a surprising prescription for improving low sexual desire. When asked about common issues she sees in the office, Dr. Harper told us that low sexual desire is one of the most common complaints she encounters. In addition to reducing stress and anxiety, she frequently makes another recommendation. The other really interesting evidence-based intervention that's non pharmacologic or non, you know, no, you're not taking a pharmaceutical for is um, erotica. And this one, everyone's always like erotica, like, what are you talking about? But this is actually really, really helpful. So there's an idea of spontaneous desire and responsive desire. And I love to explain this um, basic understanding to patients. So spontaneous desire is when the idea or the desire for sex comes into your brain from nowhere, just from, you know, from the heavens above. And you're like, oh, I I would love, you know, to have a sexual encounter. That sounds great. And when we're younger, that sometimes uh, women identify with that. But over time, as we age, oftentimes, sometimes women will stay on that track. But oftentimes, this idea of responsive desire actually starts to become more prominent, which is that when we encounter a sexual cue, for example, erotica, then that 
becomes, uh, that shows up as arousal in our body. So we talked about that, that um, engorgement in the genitals, the pulsating, the throbbing, and then that actually sends the message to our brain that, Hey, actually a sexual encounter does sound pretty good, right? So um, that is a different way of thinking of things that women can tap into. If they think they have low desire, many times they actually have in fact, responsive desire, where when they access something like erotica, if their goal is to increase intimacy, then they can in fact increase desire for intimacy through one of those pathways. So erotica is a great tool. Also, exercise has been shown to improve sexual desire. So 20 minutes of vigorous exercise three times a week, and it's in fact right before. So like exercise, shower, no shower, and then sex. Because what happens is it increases blood flow. um, And it also boosts your mood, right? So these other things that we're talking about really can come into play um, and be expressed through that other behavioral intervention. Um, You know, there's some other opportunities in terms of changing our thought patterns around sex and around desire and and sort of how, what are the, what are the benefits of it? And then lastly, there are pharmacologic agents um, for something called HSDD or hypoactive of sexual desire disorder. And that describes women that don't have spontaneous desire, nor do they have responsive desire. So, you know, the way that I can explain this to patients is that they could be on a desert island with the partner of their dreams in the sexiest environment, least stressful environment ever. And they still are like, no, thank you. Like, this is not for me. I don't want to do this. And so that could, could be diagnosed as HSDD in certain circumstances or some other qualifiers. And there are two pharmacologic interventions for that. The last thing that people often ask me about is testosterone, because that comes up all the time. Um, And it is not FDA approved um, for any sexual complaint in women or actually for anything in women. But we know that it does work. The challenge is we don't have great long term data. Um, So ACOG supports use for up to six months. Um, The challenge is getting it getting it paid for, following it. So it's something that sex medicine doctors use frequently, but it's not approachable for many OBGYNs or internists because they're just quite not quite sure how to dose it. And they're, they're concerned about that lack of FDA approval. And what about the, uh, the adverse effects? Yeah. So, um, you know, the challenge is we don't have any long-term, uh, randomized controlled trials to talk about the adverse effects. If women are dosed above the range where they should be, we can oftentimes see abnormal um, bleeding from the from the uterine lining. We can see, um, you know, lowering of the voice. We can see abnormal hair growth. We can see the clitoris enlarging in size. So um, those are not common. And if you uh, if you are dosing in the right way, meaning you are following levels, then those things should not happen. Um, and our preferred dosing of testosterone is transdermal, meaning like a cream, um, or but and not in a way that cannot be removed like a pellet. That is not a good idea. You mentioned uh, mood and and stress, but also uh, potentially the effect of depression and anxiety. And, you know, there's so many women that are on um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, otherwise known as SSRIs, like Zoloft, Prozac, and so forth. And those as a side effect have reduced libido or, or reduced, um, it shouldn't say, I don't know if it's reduced libido or reduced orgasm, ability to orgasm. You can um, All clarify that. Yes. And so how do you treat that? 
Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, so yes, most of the older SSRIs that we prescribe frequently because they're well covered by insurance, patients can get their hands on them easily, do have, you know, sexual side effects. And that can be that can show up as lower desire, that can show up as decreased arousal, that can definitely show up as absent or inhibited or delayed orgasm. So this is something really that I feel like we should all be counseling patients on when we start them on these meds. Because when we start a man on a beta blocker, we're certainly telling him that it might affect his erection. And he already knows that because it's all over the place. But Women don't know this about the medicines that we prescribe for them, so we, we owe them that. The other thing that's really important for patients to know is that depression and sexual dysfunction are often comorbid, um, and that's, that's okay. They, they run together. Um, and so what that means is that we are oftentimes explaining to patients that um, those patients who are depressed and have sexual dysfunction actually and, and who are treated for their depression do better than patients who are depressed and who are not treated for their depression. So we don't want to recommend that everyone stops their SSRIs. We don't want to recommend that, you know, we're just throwing, throwing our depression and anxiety medicine away because we really do have to treat those mood symptoms. It's just that we want to do so in a way that's respectful to, you know, sexual side effects as well. So it's, it's sometimes takes a, a couple of tries. Um, but you know, it, it can, it can be possible. And sometimes you got to bring in somebody, you know, who knows a little bit more about these things. Thank you. One other uh, topic I just wanted to touch on is that how do you approach the woman who's had a history of sexual trauma? Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting. Their sexual trauma, first and foremost, is so common, sadly, right? There's so many women who are dealing with this. Um, and many women don't ever talk about it, not one time. And so we, you know, as as um, clinicians, as as physicians, we should always just be aware of how common these things are, and that sexual trauma does not always mean sexual dysfunction. I don't think it's helpful for us to say, "Oh, this patient has X Y Z. She's she definitely must have had some sexual trauma." Like that's it's not helpful to equate the two, but it's always helpful to understand and be aware that any person, male or female, um, when we're speaking on this issue, particularly our women patients could potentially have been a victim of, you know, sexual harassment, sexual trauma, sexual violence, however we want to talk about it and define it. And to just understand that even if it wasn't something that, you know, would be prosecutable by law, it's really not even about that. It's about the person's lived experience of it. It's about how that affects their, um, you know, their current context now. And just, just to be super respectful of that. We, you know, my go-to, if someone feels like there's an opportunity to work through a, a sexual trauma or sexual violence is to send them to therapy. That's not something that I <clears throat> am trained to do or equipped to do, but I am trained to be aware and I am trained to be sensitive and I am trained to let the patient guide the conversation and the exam in a way that feels really comfortable and approachable to her. And I think that we can all do that for our patients, even if we're not trained, you know, to, to help patients through a sexual trauma. So let's move on to, um, you know, I think the issue of vaginal dryness and what your recommendations are. And I want to specifically not only talk about lubrication and moisturizers and, and all of that, which is obviously very important, but let's also talk about estrogen and the different ways that one can use estrogen. Sure. 
So when it comes to vaginal dryness, there's, you know, the most common cause of vaginal dryness is lack of estrogen, right? And so we can overcome lack of estrogen in many ways. And and lack of estrogen can happen for lots of reasons. As we mentioned, it can happen from lactation if you're making, you know, milk to, to feed a baby. Um, it can happen during perimenopause when the hormones are fluctuating. It can happen postmenopausally. And it can happen as a result of um, like a surgical menopause where the ovaries have been removed or a chemical menopause where a patient is taking a hormone receptor blocker for um, a cancer diagnosis or some other diagnosis. So those are the most frequent use cases where people are experiencing lower levels of estrogen, which lead to vaginal dryness. As we mentioned, the ramifications of that are usually sexual pain. Also that the skin is just thinner. So the there's no lubrication and that skin tears more easily, which increases the risk of infection, um, both vaginally and of the urinary tract, right? So UTIs. Um, so none of that is fun. None of that is good for sex. Um, and there are lots of different ways we can think about approaching it, right? So, I mean, I think all people should use lube all the time. There's nothing wrong with lube. Lube doesn't mean that you've got a problem or you're not turned on or you don't like your partner or find them attractive, lube, there's actually data to show that lube increases pleasure for all couples that were, you know, that, that use it. So there's no reason we shouldn't all be using lube in the first place, but particularly for people with vaginal dryness, it's a great first place to start. And there's lots of different types of lube. There's water-based, there's oil-based, there's silicone-based. My personal favorite is silicone-based. Um, but you, you know, there are a few caveats, which is that if you use them with silicone toys, then they can break down the silicone. If you're cleaning your toys properly, that's probably not as much of an issue. Um, so then the, the, after we talk about sort of the over-the-counter lubricants that are available, then there are also, we move into the pharmaceutical agents. And as you alluded to, there's lots of different preparations, right? So we can start with the estrogen ones. There's estrogen cream, there's estrogen tablets, there's an estrogen ring. Um, there are also other types of estrogen that are meant more for systemic symptoms. So there's estrogen tablets you can take by mouth. There's also an estrogen patch, an estrogen, um, like gel that you can kind of rub in. Those actually work throughout the body, including the brain, to really work more on hot flashes, um, mood changes, sleep, you know, all of those things. If we're talking specifically about vaginal dryness, the hormones that work best for those are the ones that go in or on the vagina, right? Or in, uh, really in the vagina is probably the way I should say that most correctly. Um, so, you know, and sometimes women are on both and that's totally fine. You can take oral estrogen or estrogen via a patch and also use vaginal estrogen if you need it. The other option that I actually love for um, uh, trouble with decreased estrogen or atrophy, or there's lots of names we could call this, um, is um, prasterone, which is vaginal DHEA. And the reason that I love it is because the body converts the DHEA into estrogen and testosterone. So you get the local effects of both of those hormones on the vulva and the vagina. And there are testosterone receptors in the vulva. So um, there is some data to suggest that um, vaginal prasterone or DHEA has a more beneficial side effect profile when it comes to um, sexual function benefits. So if it's a patient that I'm treating for sexual dysfunction and um, you know, lack of estrogen or atrophy in the vagina, then I will usually reach for prasterone. <clears throat> and there's no black box. Um, on that for, you know, cancer patients and things like that. All right. And can you explain what black box is to our listeners? 
Sure. Yeah. So black box, whether we agree with this black box or not is a different story. Um, but means that there's a <clears throat> recommendation from the FDA that you don't use a medication in a certain population. And for estrogen, because of this WHI trial that came out a long time ago, and now, you know, many, many years later has been sort of um, questioned uh, upside down and all around, um, the black box remains on vaginal estrogen. Um, to say that patients who have been treated for hormone receptor positive breast cancer should not use it. Many, many people disagree with that, myself included. Um, women who have breast cancer are suffering in a, in a big way with sexual side effects after their cancer diagnosis and from all the medicines that they're taking. And they deserve to make an informed decision. And most of us um, know that these vaginal preparations are not absorbed systemically. Um, and it should be the patient's decision whether or not she wants to use these vaginal hormonal preparations to sacrifice, you know, I mean, to, to, to revive her sex life and sexual function, rather than living for however many decades more, you know, with, with no sexual function intact. And just to underline what you just said, and please correct me if I'm wrong, what you were alluding to is the Women's Health Initiative, which um, was a large study that um, really focused on estrogen or what we think of as hormone replacement therapy. And there were some initial results that suggested that um, the risk of breast cancer would be increased, but they really kind of blanket made a blanket statement when in fact there were a lot of nuances, and so that's what you're alluding to, correct? Absolutely, yes. And and the way that estrogen was um, prescribed in that study is not the way that we use estrogen, you know, in regular practice for for patients who are menopausal with symptoms. And there's a lot of opportunity for improvement um, on that data for sure. Sure. And to your point also, if someone, usually when we prescribe what, again, was, would be considered hormone replacement therapy with um, an estrogen pill, for example, if someone had a uterus, we prescribe progesterone so that the risk of endometrial cancer is reduced. Do you need to do that with vaginal estrogen? Such a good question. You do not need to do that with vaginal estrogen. It is not necessary with vaginal estrogen um, preparations. But yes, if you're taking estrogen orally or through a patch or a cream, then you do need progesterone if you have a uterus in order to protect against endometrial cancer. Absolutely. Want to go to what you were talking about in terms of potential alternatives to estrogen if somebody decides that they don't want to use that. And one of those is a device that can increase blood flow to the vagina and reproductive organs. What do you think about those kinds of opportunities or options? Yeah, you know, they do have some data to show that the laser type therapies that you're talking about can be beneficial postmenopausally. Um, it's not first line, right? It's not what we reach for first and foremost. But like you said, if a patient for whatever reason does not um, want to do hormonal therapy, then that's something that they can consider or can, can, can consider it as an adjunct, meaning in addition to. Um, so I think that there's a lot of opportunity for future um, knowledge and, and research in those, uh, in those studies, including for breast cancer patients. We know that, you know, patients who <clears throat> have had cancer or who specifically who are on aromatase inhibitors, like most a lot of breast cancer patients are, that those lasers can work differently in those patients. So we're still kind of awaiting that um, data to say, you know, across the board that that's a great intervention for these patients. We know from a cellular level that 
there should be benefit. But sometimes, you know, that cellular makeup can be changed with some of those other medicines that breast cancer patients are taking. Um, so that those trials are, are going on right now. Um, a couple of uh, potentially random questions, and then um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up a little bit. Um, I'm interested in the role of masturbation in sexual health. And if that's yeah. something that you suggest to your, pa- to your uh, patients. Oh, such a good question. Yeah, I call it self-pleasure because masturbation can be a little bit daunting for patients and, and doctors both. I think that that's like <laughs> a hard word to try to get people to say. Um, and really, let's, you know, when we back up and we think about it, um, it's, it's, there's a lot of value to it. And I talk about it all the time. And the reason is because there's many reasons, but the primary ones are because number one, if we're feeling too anxious or nervous or ashamed of our bodies to even kind of figure out what's going on down there for ourselves, the likelihood that we're going to be able to enter into some highly communicative, highly pleasurable sexual relationship with someone else is pretty low. Um, because those same feelings are going to be kind of getting in the way, right? And so it's much easier to work through some of that stuff individually than and it is to introduce another person who probably has their own stuff to work through. And then we're all trying to work through our stuff together while also not ever talking about it. You know, it's just a little confusing how all that's going to work out. So for that reason, I think it's really important. And the other reason is just really like logistics, right? Like if we don't know what feels good to our own body and our own selves at certain you know phases of life, then how will we ever be able to share that or communicate that to someone else? And so there's really like a guilt, shame, pleasure factor. And then there's a logistics factor both of which are super duper important. And, you know, there's also a third component, which is just a health factor. We, it's very rare and maybe even never in a relationship did two people want to have sex with one another always at the same time, right? Like that's just not a thing that actually happens in real life. And there shouldn't be any, you know, issue with, okay, as long as we're communicating about our sex life together, you know, I think that there's not any reason why people shouldn't also feel comfortable with self-pleasure or masturbation in conjunction with that, you know, a coupled sexual relationship. So um, there's many health benefits to orgasm. You know, we could talk about all of those. We could talk about, you know, so many opportunities for anxiety and stress relief. Um, so I think that when you think about it in that way, that there's lots of reasons to encourage that, you know, for women, for patients and, and sort of normalize that experience. You actually anticipated my next question is, what are the health benefits of sex? Yeah. Oh, there's there's so many. So there's amazing <laughs> things that happen in our body, right? Whenever, even before orgasm, even just with touch of our own bodies, right? So being present in our own body, being present with a partner, um, really focusing on that mindfulness or being present in our bodies. And there we get tons of neurotransmitter release in our brains. We get tons of hormone release in our body. And these can decrease stress, decrease that cortisol hormone and increase all of our feel-good hormones, including oxytocin, including serotonin and norepinephrine. When we have um, functional MRI scans of the brain at the time, of orgasm, which shows the same exact um, brain state as like complete mindfulness, um, which results in in tons of cardiovascular benefits. um, And also, as I mentioned, those longer term um, stress and sleep benefits too, as well. So lots of lots of reasons. I think it's an understudied field that we, you know, have yet to really explore. um, But we definitely have some great 
early indicators and early reasons. And and we as humans know, right, that it's good for us because that's it feels good. We want to, we want to engage sexually at least at some tar- times in our life. And so there's that knowledge that it's there. And there's there's so many more opportunities for research as well. You know, I think that um, we all feel like as we age, it shouldn't be as important and that maybe we have a reduced uh, expectation that we're going to have a pleasurable sex life. What's your thought on that? Oh, it makes me sad. <laughs> I don't want I don't want anybody to feel that way. I think that as we age, we, you know, become more liberated in so many parts of our lives. We feel free to say what we think. I also think we should feel free to express ourselves sexually. I think there's some, you know, really exciting things that happen with aging in terms of confidence, in terms of potential connection and permission with your partner. Um, And it's, you know, I really view it as, as an opportunity to continue that, you know, that sexual journey, which we alluded to earlier. So I don't think there's any point in life where, sexuality should be over. There's times where our bodies don't want to cooperate with, you know, our, our desires or our hopes. Um, and in those cases, they can be worked around just as we discussed, um, rewriting the sexual script in cases of, you know, erectile dysfunction, or if people have had, you know, some sort of issue where they're not able to have penetrative sex, that's fine. Let's rewrite that script. Let's look at this, you know, in, in as many other ways as are offered to us, um, and really continue that connection with our sexual selves and in our relationship with our partners. Thank you. So what did I not ask you or cover that you think is important? Well, you know, I just would love to emphasize how common sexual concerns are and that not not only are they common, but there are really great evidence-based things that we can do to help women with sexual concerns. So if you are experiencing something or your best friend or your mom or your daughter or, you know, your sister, the, the most important thing that we can all do is to start talking about this more openly, right? And in a way that's really, that really focuses on sexual health as part of our health. Not in a way that's, you know, dismissive, not in a way that's um, like joking, but in a way to say, hey, we as women deserve more. Like we, this is part of our lives that we deserve to really understand, to really, um, you know, take advantage of. And there's no reason, I don't want anyone to be suffering in shame or embarrassment. Absolutely. And I'm sure it's related. What would be your call to action for anyone listening, what's one thing that you would ask them to consider doing? Oh, there's so many, so many things. I think it would be to maybe seek out some sort of evidence-based resource for sexual health, whether it's a book, whether it's your <clears throat> healthcare provider, whether it's someone who's really knowledgeable in this in this area, because the the power that knowledge has in this in this area is huge if we could erase the shame and isolation and lack of evidence-based education that you know is pervasive across the world we would solve more than half of women's sexual health problems so it's really spreading that you know evidence-based information and sharing that with others around us so that's what i would that's what i would challenge everyone to do and well again um add some resources that you'll help us with um, in our podcast notes. So thank you for that. Great. Um, Dr. Lindsay Harper, thank you so much for uh, coming today. It was really a pleasure. Well, thanks for having me. I love talking about this stuff and I appreciate the opportunity. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I learned a lot. Here are some takeaways and some editorial comment from me as well. First of all, sexual concerns are common in women. In fact, 43% of women report having difficulty with some aspect of their sexual lives. Your physician is a good place to start, and even if they don't bring it up, you should. While you can talk about this at your annual visit, you can also make a specific appointment to just address your concern. In fact, if you are having a problem that's new, it's important to check it out as soon as possible. There may be an underlying medical issue that needs attention. Of course, not all doctors are trained or comfortable talking about sexual health beyond ruling out a medical condition. In that instance, you could ask for a referral or consult the resources in our podcast notes. We can sort sexual problems into the following categories, desire, arousal, pain, orgasm, and lubrication. 38% of women complain of a change in sexual desire, which can have multiple causes, such as stress or hormonal changes. You can think of desire as a mind issue and arousal as a body issue. Just like erectile dysfunction in men, women's arousal may be hampered by medical conditions such as diabetes, vascular disease, or injury to blood vessels and nerves. Some medications can interfere with arousal as well. 10 to 20% of women complain of chronic sexual pain, which can be caused by disorders such as endometriosis. But if something is new, that too needs to be checked out by a physician to rule out a possible medical condition. Orgasm and challenges with lubrication can be both mind and body issues and are very common in women as well. Treatment for these various issues depends on the cause. Options include stress reduction and therapy for relationship and anxiety issues. Erotica and exercise can also help increase desire. There are medications for certain types of diminished sexual arousal. We also discuss the use of SSRI antidepressants. Some can have a significant effect on desire, sexual arousal, and orgasm, as can depression itself, so sometimes it's a trade-off with respect to treatment. It's important, though, to discuss these sexual side effects with your doctor. Sometimes changing medication can help solve the problem. Women with a history of sexual trauma can also face challenges when it comes to sexual health, and talking with a professional can help. However, as Dr. Harper notes, sexual trauma does not necessarily lead to sexual dysfunction and should not be the only factor considered if there is a problem. Vaginal dryness can occur in lactating moms, women undergoing chemotherapy, and women in menopause. It's a common problem. Treatment options can include lubricants, estrogen, and other topical hormones, depending on your medical history. So you may wonder, why spend so much time on this issue? Because sex can be good for you. Some benefits include releasing lots of feel-good, stress-releasing neurotransmitters, improving sleep, and even helping heart health, as well as enhancing your relationship. And you don't have to be young to reap those benefits. In fact, age has its privileges, like feeling more confident and being able to decide to rewrite your sexual script. I hope this episode has empowered you to take charge of your sexual health, and if you are having difficulty, to seek help from a physician or other skilled provider. If there's something that works for you, we'd love to hear about it on our community forum at beyondthepapergown.com.
I'd also like to invite you to rate us on the podcast platform you subscribe to. That helps to tell them that you like this podcast and makes it more visible to others as well. I'm trying to get just five new ratings. I hope you'll be one of them. I really appreciate it. I do hope you'll join us if you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe. For more information on this episode or for additional episodes, links, and comments, find us at beyondthepapergown.com or follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This episode of Beyond the Paper Gown was produced by Patrick Shumbayati and Dr. Mitzi Krakow. Until next time, stay healthy and centered.